Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is John Leaf, MD, who is author of The Secret Language of Cells. We will discuss why cell communication is important for our health. John is a neuropsychiatrist and lecturer active on social media. After completing his studies at the Harvard Medical School, he pioneered integrated treatment programs for the elderly, medically ill, and brain-injured patients. For the past 10 years, in his blog, Searching for the Mind, he has discussed the latest scientific findings in neuroscience, animal behavior, cellular biology, immunology, and microbiology as they relate to the question of where mind can be found in nature. His book, The Secret Language of Cells, What Biological Conversations Tell Us About the Brain-Body Connection, the Future of Medicine, and Life Itself, strives to explain the science of how different cells, bacteria and brain cells, blood cells and viruses, speak the same language. John, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Glad to be here. This is heady stuff. It's it seems like, duh, of course it makes sense once we hear the concept, but for a long time that's not how science and medicine and people in general have looked at our bodies. Let's start with the title of the book. When you say the secret language of cells, you're not talking about English or Russian or Cantonese, right? Tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say language in this context. Well, it's it's funny. Often people say, do I speak many foreign languages? And I would say, yes, I do. I speak molecular biology and uh, molecular genetics uh, because it really is a foreign language. And a lot of what I've done in my blog and, and in the book is translate incomprehensible uh scientific articles into English um, and uh, because when you read about these uh, the cells and their language and their conversations it's it's impossible for anyone outside of very limited areas of expertise to even follow it because it's filled with the names of receptors and the names of molecules and genes and so there is this elaborate system of signaling that goes on uh, everywhere in biology, both in between cells, but also inside cells, all the way down into the uh, genes, and uh, all the way up into the bloodstream and throughout the entire body. And these signals, there are a variety of types of signals. I mean, they're chemicals, they're electricity, they're little sacks filled with chemicals and molecules. They're little tubes filled with chemicals and molecules. Um, and the, the what, what's new is that everyone knows that neurons talk to each other. We've all been taught that neurons send signals in the brain, the neurotransmitters. But it's not been clear to everyone that all the cells are talking just as much as the neurons are and they're all talking to each other, and that none can really function without the other, and that even to make a small, for example, one example is an infection. So you have an infection in one little area, and what happens is the local cells, including the blood vessel cells, the capillaries, start sending signals, and they go and tell the bone marrow what kind of immune cells to send, these cells are given directions to climb even against the blood flow and to travel to the spot. When they arrive at the area, the signals, the conversation goes back and forth and the blood cells make a little pathway so the blood cell can sneak out of the uh, blood vessel into the tissue. And once it's in the tissue, there are signals of uh, sort of a chief cell arrives, the T cell, which is the master, finally arrives. It takes over from the other cells that were directing uh, the, uh, the activity. And um, all of these cells, including platelets, are all talking to each other. Uh, uh, it goes on on the skin, which is how skin operates and why we don't have 
so many infections constantly. It goes on in the gut, between the gut cells, the microbes, immune cells, constant communication going on about nutrition, about uh, food allergies, about uh, avoiding infections, about getting the friendly bacteria close to the lining and not having uh, and keeping the enemy bacteria away. So what's new is that there really is no separation. One of the huge ones is the immune system and the brain talking to each other to the extent that you really can't separate them. And um, I've written some – I. It's been described as as the wired brain and the wireless brain. So the wired brain are these wires called neurons and axons, and the wireless brains are the constant cells traveling around the body, signaling to the neurons uh, back and forth. The the most study, I mean, there every cell is involved, but the, probably the most striking new research has been. Um, the immune cells and the brain cells, which we can talk about in a variety of significant ways, but it occurs with capillary cells. Cancers, for example, are are viewed in a new way uh, because we, we all think of microbes as sort of a colony that talk to each other, at least those who are aware of microbe activity. And we learned about microbe uh, signaling 30 years ago, but only now has become so significant. And we realize how much influence they have on us because uh, what's happened is we've learned that the microbes speak the same language as our cells and they interrupt and they and they're involved in this in the same conversation but cancers are like more intelligent colonies than microbes and you have these really complicated cancer cells signaling to all their comrades just the way microbes would so for example microbes send uh, genes around to help avoid antibiotics they send uh, resistance genes and uh, cancers do the same thing. They they realize that you're sending medications to kill them, and they develop uh, ways to fight the medications, and then they'll send these genes in uh, little sacks to their comrades to um, uh, strengthen the other cells. They talk to blood vessel cells to uh, make new blood vessels. They talk to the local uh, connective cells so that uh, those cells will help them build the structure of the cancer. They talk to uh, immune cells and platelets to help them uh, avoid other immune cells that might attack them. I don't know if I'm going on or far afield. Um. No, you're fine. So to go back to the question, the way that they're communicating, the secret language that the title refers to, to our knowledge is chemical and electrical, but you also raise the issue in the book that there might be other types of communication methods, such as electromagnetic fields or photons or quantum states that could be directing information flow. Yes, there's there's a lot that, as science gets better, we're able to observe. I mean, it's very hard to observe a signal in the middle of a cell but it's being done now. Uh, an example is uh, I've written uh, about viruses, and what, what, what I've been intrigued by is the complicated lifestyle that viruses have. So I've written articles on my blog uh, about HIV, about Ebola, about dengue, about uh, varicella, and these are extremely complicated lifestyles where they interact with this huge cell that has so much more capacity and they manipulate the cell. They create uh, decoys. But what was, so to me, it's been obvious for years that they are part of the communication that is obvious with uh, uh, cells, with uh, microbes, which are cells. Viruses aren't cells. They're really just a molecule, really, uh, an RNA or a DNA molecule. And so how do they communicate? Well, Four years ago, a signal was found where phage viruses, these are the viruses that surround uh, bacteria rather than the other kind of viruses or the kind that attack us or surround us, our cells, but the kind that go with bacteria called phage, they found a signal between the viruses, and the signal was whether 
they should join together and kill this bacteria that they're living off of right now, or whether they should let the bacteria live because um, it's uh, we we still need it. And then so what happened is after uh, the four over the four years, fifteen new. Uh, conversations have been found in all kinds of viruses. So uh, viruses are part of the conversation, but it was so tiny, it's very hard to tell uh, tell that until now. But when you ask, so we don't really know. I mean, we know that photons have a, a major effect on life and that there are mechanisms whereby uh, six photons are enough to uh, tip us off that something's happening in the dark because of the amplification that occurs in the um, in the rod cells. Uh, the way the signaling occurs, it creates, uh, it triggers one thing that then triggers another and triggers another, and this cascade enlarges the signal to the point where we can, we can become aware of some light in the dark with only five or six photons, which is remarkable. But also, we know that photons uh, create um, the electricity flow that creates photosynthesis that hits electrons. And of course, the movement of electrons is the way all energy works in the cells. Um, that's a whole another complicated story. But it's clear, but we don't know yet that cells are sending photons to each other, but they, they probably have, it's probably a mechanism. Uh, electricity, we know about the type of electricity that goes along an axon, and we know other gradients, uh, the inside and the outside of a membrane, uh, with different um, electrical potentials, but there are fields around all the cells, and particularly cells that involve electricity like neurons, and we don't know yet how that operates. So, yeah, there's a lot more to learn. And, and the point of the book is that in order to accomplish something in medicine, you really have to understand this language. I mean, this is the basis of how everything is working and how the body works, how all of biology works, is through sig signals of what seem to be intelligent cells because they make decisions based upon these cells. I mean, how does the capillary cell in the in the arm know to send a signal to the bone marrow that we need this particular kind of immune cell and then send signals, this is where we are, and helping them get there, and then when they get there, talk to them and let them in. Uh, this is a back-and-forth uh, conversation that goes on. When we talk about cell, we're talking about different types of cells, as you've mentioned, the brain cells versus the gut cells and all of the various types of cells that we have in our bodies. How is that different from microbes, which are also different, archaea? Well, I'll let you talk about it. Microbes are just small cells that live independently and live everywhere. So our cells are thousands of times larger than microbes. <clears throat> the mitochondria is a, an old bacteria, a microbe, that uh, a billion, two billion years ago created a deal with a larger cell where they'll bring their energy factory into the cell in exchange for protection and to be able to live in the cell. And then the cell took over most of the functioning and the hard work of construction um, and this deal where we have um, at least one bacteria in our cell, probably more, probably the nucleus, probably some of the other organelles were also uh, originally microbes. But microbes are much, much smaller than our cells. Our cells are like enormous cities compared to microbes. And, of course, viruses are much, much tinier than 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 bacteria. So uh, our cells are vastly more complicated. We have organelles. So in the last section of my book, I, 
I, so the first section is about cells of the body. I, I do separate the body and the brain because that's how most people think about it. But the, the conclusion is that there really is no separation. But the first section are blood cells, cancer cells, liver, uh, skin cells, uh, uh, gut cells. The second section are the, uh, the, the, all the brain cells, the guardian cells, the, the supportive cells, the neuron. And uh, new stuff about pain and inflammation, which is very interesting, we can talk about. And then the, the next section is microbes and viruses. But the fourth section are what's called organelles. These are compartments inside of our cells that are uh, along the same size as a microbe. And these compartments, the mitochondria, the nucleus, the uh, endoplasmic reticulum is a stupid word, but it's one of the very important organelles. Um, these are all talking to each other also in the same way. And uh, even some of the comp most complicated molecules that create complexes that are extremely complicated, they are also signaling to the organelles inside. So the, the, the language is at every level. And then you have the cells our cells, like uh, blood vessel, the cells that make up the blood vessels, the cells that make up the tissues, the cells that make up the immune system where these cells wander through the body cleaning up problems. Um, these cells are all communicating about the larger project of running a huge body. Uh, and then you have the brain operating uh, in its... Uh, way of doing what brains do with consciousness and uh and you have the immune cells constantly signaling back and forth with the brain cells about everything really about both uh mental things like stress and depression but also uh infections and uh uh almost every issue involves the brain and the immune working together with with multiple signals this this language that the cells are using applies to the cells in our body, those larger ones, as well as the bacteria and the viruses, because they are all intercommunicating. Is that yeah, right? Well, let me clarify one thing. So everyone knows now that microbes are important and they affect us a lot. So the, but the question is why? How does that happen? Well, the answer is really very simple. The way it happens is that microbes are constantly talking to each other, but they're also constantly talking to human cells, and they all speak the same language. That's what's uh, dramatic. The microbes, fungus, uh, plants, um, archaea, you mentioned, another type of microbe, uh, bacteria, all speak with the same words. The words are specific chemicals like neurotransmitters, or cytokines, they call them. Those are the immune system. But there are others, many others. Um, and there's this uh, very, very complicated way that these signals hit the cell, uh, hit receptors on the surface of the cell, and those receptors then signal inside the cell, and they, then they go through a, a, a cascade, a pathway, uh, and many, many different things happen, and these pathways are all interacting. And one of the pathways takes you down into the nucleus where you create, where you hit certain genes and stimulate new kinds of activity uh, from the uh, genetic uh, sig signaling down into the gene, which then creates new proteins and creates new activity. So the, the signaling goes on in between the cells, but then once it, it hits the outside of the cell, it goes all the way into the cell to in order to bring about behavior change in the cell. Now, one of the things that is extraordinary about what the, you're discussing in the book is how interconnected all of the body parts are and how they're not just segregated, as perhaps we've thought for a long time, but rather, as you're describing, that commands are given in one part of the body to address issues in another part of the body, and somehow the cells find their way there and quickly. 
would you tell us a little bit more about that process? Well, this is why uh, Andy Weil, the famous integrative uh, medicine um, doctor, uh, said the book uh, is a new paradigm for health and disease. And what that new paradigm means is that before, if you were going to study the kidney, you would study the kidney. You would go and look at kidney cells. and But now it is known that you can't just study the kidney. The kidney is talking with the uh, capillaries. It's talking with uh, cells halfway around the body. It's talking with the bone marrow. It's talking with uh, all kinds of other parts. So you, you have to – it makes it more complicated, but it makes it that you know where to look for new treatments because the new treatments will be – uh, manipulating, altering, or uh, these these signals, the uh, language uh, is is most new advanced treatments. Like for cancer, are these signals? And the way they work is that we know that uh, cancers talk to T cells, so we're able then to work on strengthening T cells to attack the cancer. We know that certain viruses go into uh, certain cancers. So we take those viruses and we manipulate them with put a medication inside the virus. And then we know that those, they will talk and the, vi- and the medication will arrive at the cancer because these are pre-existing avenues of communication between the viruses, the immune cells, and the cancer. Um, so here's, here's another, another way out example. And this is just very far out because no one ever thought of this until this new science of signaling. So there are capillary cells are the very tiniest blood vessels that are everywhere. They're in every organ. So every organ has, and some have their own special type of capillary cell, like the lung has a special kind that deals with air. You have the kidney that deals with more with, uh, you know, getting rid of uh, of uh, waste products. But every single organ has a capillary system, the brain. And these capillary cells are just little blood vessel cells sitting there. And no one would have suspected that it is the capillary cells that are telling the stem cells in the organ what to do. Now, what's funny about this, as I mentioned in the book, is that Aristotle who knew nothing about modern science. He was just shooting from the hip. He said that uh, blood vessel cells determine the organs. He sort of made that up, you know, and he was right, uh, ultimately. And no one knew this until a couple of years ago, that it is the, ca- the capillary cells, these little blood vessel cells, are sending signals to the stem cell in the organ, telling them when they need to make new uh, liver cells, new uh, kidney cells. They're so specific that they tell the bone marrow cells when to make uh, blood vessel, uh, uh, white blood cells and red blood vessels. So in other words, and but not even more specific, not just white blood cells, but a lymphocyte versus a neutrophil. Um, so no one would have suspected that. The other thing that no one would have suspected, which is platelets. Plate, the platelet chapter is, is, is kind of mind-blowing. And that's the chapter that Harvard Medical Review just picked to uh, feature in uh, the current issue of the Harvard Medical Review, um, because no platelets have no nucleus. They, everyone thought they're basically a plug. So what can a platelet do? Well, turns out that before the platelet leaves its mother cell, the mother cell puts into it a huge amount of uh, granules, sacs, filled with chemicals, and a huge amount of messenger RNA in order to make proteins. They have ribosomes. They can make proteins. And they have messenger RNA. And they have all these different chemicals so that platelets are actually – everyone thought, well, how can a platelet make a, pro- make a new – uh, weapon against a bacteria. It can't because it has no nucleus. It can't pr- manufacture. Well, it turns out it can because before it broke off, it has all that uh, equipment already in the platelet. So it turns out the platelets are the first responders uh, for everything. They are very intelligent and they, they 
they do fill the plug, but they also call for help. They call for the white blood cells to come. They call for the T cells. They also d- deal with uh, blood flow, like they have to figure out how to get blood flow, how to block blood flow. So platelets are very intelligent, and that's kind of mind-boggling to doctors who grew up thinking platelets are are, are, are just very simple plugs. They aren't. These are the intelligent first responders to everything that then are telling cells what to do until the bigger, more uh, capable cells like the T cell, they uh, come and then they turn over the direction to these other, uh, uh, like neutrophils come and T cells come and take over and they're the ones giving directions for the fight against a uh, an infection. Usually we think of language as something that we do when we're awake. But these communications that you're describing are taking place all the time. What can you tell us about this communication and sleep? How is it similar or different, or do we know? Well, there is some evidence that individual neurons do sleep. We don't know, and other cells can become quiet in certain periods of time, like inactive, until they're activated to do certain things. More inside the cell, the organelles, um, uh, but there's some reason to believe that neurons sleep, and when more and more sleep, then that becomes what what we call sleep. But sleep is a a very um, macro happening in the body that involves centers specifically uh, geared to circadian rhythms and to hormones uh, of when to eat, when to sleep. And these are kind of macro decisions that are made in the brain in conjunction with immune cell signaling. Can I, I think I should talk a little bit about immune cell signaling because that would clarify a lot of things. So, it, it was always thought since there's no – the brain is really blocked off and it has guardian cells that don't allow ordinary immune cells inside. So it was always said that there's no immunity in the brain. They call it immune privileged. And then they discovered several things. One is that there is an immune cell there called the microglia, and in the fetus, these uh, – macrophages they're called, but they're a type of white blood cell, goes into the brain and takes up lodging there and then lives there the rest of their life and has children that stay in a little territory of the brain. And these microglias are one of the four vital brain cells, along with astrocytes and neurons and myelin-making cells. Anyway, so, and they function like T cells. They're master, um, master, uh, immune cells, but T cells, which are the masters of all immunity in the body, don't get into the brain, but what was recently discovered is they do get into the cerebral spinal fluid, and there's really 500,000 of them floating around in the cerebral spinal fluid, and they are talking, and they're coming in and out of it, and going around the rest of the body, and those T cells are talking to the neurons. So, for example, there are several important communications that go on, but both ways. In one direction, the T cell tells the uh, brain cell that things are okay and we should keep up a pulse of normal uh, thinking, normal cognition. So there's a pulse coming from the T cell saying keep things going normally. Now an infection arises and uh, the T cell says now the body has to rest. This is a big infection. You have to rest. And so the T cell sends specific pulse signals to the neurons. You must create what's called the sick feeling. And so then people develop the sick feeling, which we all know. And this means we, um, we have to lie down and we have to take care of ourselves. And this is the sick feeling is an instruction to not 
uh, overdo things so that the body can heal, so the energy can go towards the healing of the infection. When this infection is over, only the T-cell can tell the neuron that it's over, and then they start saying, no, it's over, get rid of the sick feeling. Okay, That's one of the many things that T-cells are telling neurons. Another very, very important one is there's a process whereby um, when the fetus is being uh, built, there's uh, billions and billions of neurons are produced, but then only a certain amount are, are kept. So, for example, a trillion are produced, but only 80 billion are kept. The rest are gotten rid of or pruned. But after that, there's only a small trickle of new brain cells in adults. There's about a thousand every day, and these are largely in the memory centers and in the in the nose. Uh, there's a couple of other little tiny areas, but mainly in the in the memory center. And the memory center is creating new cells, and these new cells are how we create new memories. So new memories are involved in incorporating these new uh, new neurons that are that are produced from stem cells. And again, the capillaries tell the stem cells. But the T-cell signal is very important to make these brain cells. So when depression occurs, there is a decrease in new memory brain cells, which is why people feel that fog in depression. And uh, it is the T-cell telling uh, the neurons and the, and the stem cells to make less. When depression is treated from whatever treatment, either medication or therapy or, or just goes away, when people are feeling better, then the T cell is telling them to make more, uh, the normal amount of new memory cells. The same process occurs with stress. Acute stress is actually positive for work, um, but chronic stress does the opposite. Acute stress it sort of heightens uh, work. But when stress goes on too long, then it creates a negative depression-like situation where there's less uh, memory cells. So um, these are signals that are being sent from the T-cell into the neurons from the cerebral spinal fluid. Now, in the same way, the neurons are sending uh, communications all through the body about inflammation. Neurons can cause inflammation. They can... Uh, so, for example, on the skin, on the skin, because it's so hard, uh, it's not like in an organ where you can have a lymph node right there with all kinds of immune cells. On the skin, the only way they can keep it clean is to have a very low-grade inflammation going on where, where, the, where uh, immune cells are constantly there and ready for action. And some of them are memory cells that know where a zit was before and, and they know how, how to deal with it when it comes back to that spot or any other infection. Um, and uh, so it's the, um, the neuron is involved in creating these inflammations with instructions from the skin cell. Um, so what has been found is that the neurons have elaborate um, synapses and elaborate circuits that involve, this is all new in this new science of, of language of cells. And it used to be thought neurons talk to neurons. But now in the new uh, language, they found pathways, circuits, uh, signaling circuits that involve many other kinds of cells that are not neurons. They involve astrocytes and, and microglia, but they also involve skin cells. They also involve immune cells. So um, this is how uh, recently it's been found how acupuncture works. So, for example, no one ever knew how acupuncture could possibly work because you, you think of it as an ener uh, stimulating energy in some way, and the question is, what kind of energy could that be? Well, the only thing we think of normally in science for energy in the body are blood vessels or nerves, are the two flowing energies. Well, uh, acupuncture points are not near either one of them. And recently it was found that when you stimulate an acupuncture point that has 
on the wrist that has an effect on the kidney. How can that be? Well, the way it works is that that acupuncture point, which is done by experiment, they actually did it with electricity uh, in a needle, and they found that it stimulated a T-cell that was right there in the tissue, and that T-cell then traveled to a nearby nerve, signaled to the nerve, the signal went through the nerves to the kidney. So, again, these are circuits that we never imagined were occurring, and all kinds of things occur that way. Uh, meditation. Everyone knows that meditation lowers um, stress partially because it affects blood vessels. I mean, it affects breathing. So it makes breathing more regular through the vagus nerve. Well, also, the vagus nerve calms the GI tract. So you get a calming GI and a calming uh, uh um, breathing, but no one ever understood how can meditation uh, help immunity. Well, that's that seemed very strange. Well, in this new language, it was discovered that the vagus nerve is also involved in in, in causing and and eliminating inflammation, and therefore uh, this stimulation. Of, uh, of meditation through the vagus can affect uh, immunity because it was found that if you meditate regularly, it helps immunity. And not only that, but it, 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 it gets better the longer you meditate. So it was found that um, this immune reflex, it's called a neuroimmune reflex, they call it now. It's a brand new thing. And what it found is that these are can, can be conditioned like Pavlov's dogs. And so the more you condition it, the more, the stronger it is. And therefore, the more one meditates, the stronger the positive immune response is through this vagus nerve. So, and again, these are ways, I'm telling you now ways that the neurons affect the immunity. But I, before I told you ways that the immunity affected the brain. Uh, there are many, many other ways that involve pain. Uh, that are complicated circuits uh, that have newly been discovered. Some involve the microglia, some involve T-cells, some involve skin cells. Uh. Tell us a little bit more about pain and inflammation and the cell communication. Right. Well, we're just learning about pain. Pain is really complicated. And there are many, many kinds of pain. In fact, we don't have, we're just learning about uh, receptors in the skin. We really don't know all the receptors. We don't know all the, uh, the, the nerves that pick up various kinds of pain. But what has been discovered recently is that pain circuits are much, much more complicated than just a nerve. And they involve large circuits, you know, they call them synapses in the brain. One neuron talks, sends a signal to another. It, with pain, it involves huge synapses that involve like 10 different cells, like two T cells, one white blood cell, one uh, astrocyte, one microglia, and several neurons. And all of them are sending signals to each other. So I, I describe one such circuit in the book and there's like a hundred signals going around in this one circuit, um, and they're different. So, I mean, it's vastly complicated is the problem, and we're just scratching the surface of it. So over time, um, these circuits will be – oh, and one <laughs> – a crazy one was found where for females, it involves uh, a microglia, and for men – it involves uh, a T cell. The same circuit is has the same effect on pain, but in one it uses one kind of cell, and another uses another kind of cell. Well, eventually, when we understand these circuits, we'll be able to influence the circuit and find. I mean, the way pain medicines work are we find medication that affects a circuit. But all we've been looking for up until now are circuits involving neurons. And now that these complicated uh, and, and, and a lot of these chronic pain syndromes 
will be unusual circuits and will prevent. Uh, I'll give you one small example. So for years, for migraine, people took Elevil, and that's a tricyclic antidepressant. And the reason, uh, and and everyone thought it works through serotonin because that's the way other migraine um, other migraine uh, uh, medicines worked. Uh, the 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 traditional, not very effective uh, migraine medicines are uh, are based on serotonin. And they assumed that Elevil, but of all the antidepressants, Elevil was the best. And no one knew why, but because it was just serotonin was like the others. It, it affects norepinephrine, it affects serotonin. Norepinephrine and serotonin together are better for pain, but for migraines in particular. So then... Just recently, it was found that it has nothing to do with serotonin. Why Elevil? Turns out there's a totally different mechanism. Um, migraines are like opposite to seizures. There's a, seizures are like a, an excitation. Migraines are a spreading depression. They're sort of the opposite. And then it goes uh, to a nerve center in the face, uh, the, tr- the trigeminal nerve, and a particular neurotransmitter is involved that no one ever heard of before. And that neurotransmitter, turns out, is vital for migraine. And Elevil happened to have that effect, unlike all the other antidepressants, affected that particular uh, neurotransmitter that no one ever heard of before. And has a weird name that no one's going to remember. But what happened is that because of this, Brand new migraine medicines have just now been created uh, that have just come uh, online. They've just been approved that that use this trigeminal mechanism and affect that particular neurotransmitter. Well, the fact of the matter is that's one of a thousand mechanisms, and we're just getting uh, into that. And but this particularly these new neuroimmune circuits are going to be extremely valuable. I mean, everyone knows that immunity and pain are connected. Everyone knows, but, you know, we don't know exactly why. Everyone knows that many chronic diseases involve both immunity and chronic pain. Uh, that's probably one of the greatest problems that, that exists right now is chronic pain and chronic immune problems. And we're going to eventually get these, figure out these circuits, and then we can figure out treatments. Somebody could make the argument that by interfering with the messages that are behind the inflammation and the pain, you're interfering with the healthy functioning of the body, that there's pain and there's inflammation for a reason. What do you think about that in terms of that? You're interrupting the cell's communication. I mean, it's all a balancing act. You can say that about every medicine. I mean, every medicine is a uh, interference, uh, you know, unnatural, perhaps you could call it. But sometimes you need the medicines, and sometimes they work better than natural uh, approaches. However, having said that, clearly there's no uh, there, the the emphasis in medicine has not been on uh, good proper diet, natural foods meditation, uh, exercise, good sleep. I mean, those are the things. And put in that healthy packet meaningful uh, meaningful activity is equally important. Uh, and I, we can come back to what meaningful activity means. But so you have sleep, you have exercise, you have uh, not putting poisons in the body, you have um, uh, meditation, which is de-stressing, and you have meaningful brain activity. Those are the things that allow the body and the brain and the immune to, to work. And clearly, that would cure a lot of things. But whether it will cure everything or not, uh, probably not. I mean, there are probably some problems where you still need some medicines. You were just talking about the importance or the relationship of nutrition and sleep, and but specifically as it relates to nutrition, you talked about the brain-gut connection in the book. 
Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that and how vital it is. Well, what's strange that no one has suspected is that the gut, the gut is probably um, either the most complicated or the second most complicated situation, uh, skin and gut. This is why I described them. Here you have a body, our body, with one cell as a uh, buffer to uh, the outside world, and in the gut, it's trillions and trillions of microbes, and it's extremely complicated situation of trying to get food particles, trying to get rid of waste, and trying to not get killed by infections. Um, and all of that involves uh, an enormous interplay and constant communication. So the chapters on the gut cell and the, uh, there's both a chapter in, in the body section and the gut. There's also a chapter in the microbe section about the gut. Uh, but what's interesting is that, so we have so many, a certain amount of genes, but if you count the microbes in our gut, they have 300 times more genes than, than our cells do. So they call that the hollow genome. In other words, Really, that's another organ that involves way, way more genes than we have and are making all kinds of products, all kinds of chemicals that we don't make. Some of them are we know about, the vitamins that are necessary that are made by uh, bacteria. And a lot of the way food affects us is by attracting certain kinds of microbes. So the difference between meat and vegetarian is not just the meat and the vegetarian, it's that microbes go along with the meat and microbes go along with vegetarian and they create different uh, problems. So, for example, the meat, the red meat microbes are the ones who create uh, TMA, which is, uh, causes uh, heart disease. Uh, it's not the meat, it's, it's the microbe that likes the meat. Uh, and a lot of these microbes create products that go through the blood, or stimulate neurons right there, and affect the brain. And uh, we're just beginning to work this out. But they make neurotransmitters, they involve sleep, they involve obesity, it involves all kinds of things from the products of this huge, enormous amount of genes that are working inside of our gut. Um, and then... The lining between the gut and us is one cell. That's one cell, and that is a very intelligent cell uh, called the, the, the gut epithelial lining cell that talks constantly with these microbes about all of this and has to determine who are friendly microbes that can come close, who can be even closer than the mucus, who can be in the mucus, uh, it's very interesting that it was discovered that viruses, the friendly microbes that the gut cell allows near, has a certain family of, of viruses, and those viruses uh, help us. They actually attack um, enemy bacteria that want to get close to the lining, and some of them are entering our cells. It's a whole story that we don't really understand yet, um, but... But some of these products uh, affect the brain, and we're just now beginning to uh, learn about that. I mean, it's a, it's a huge subject, uh, but it's definitely, but again, it's early in, 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 in terms of uh, using it to, uh, for treatments or using it to, uh, you know, change the brain in a deliberate way. A lot of people think of microbes as bad. They think that anything they can't see that's tiny is harmful. This phobia has been accentuated by the pandemic, but it has been a part, it, it has been around for a long time, this fear of microbes. Right. Well, Western civilization is crazy about antiseptics and micro, antimicrobes, but there's a lot of evidence that that's one of the reasons we have more allergies and more asthma 
is because we don't grow up uh, living with the, with the germs of the healthy uh, woods, you know, of the healthy land around us. So people who actually are closer to uh, normal dirt are actually healthier uh, than, than the super clean uh, city people. But um, basically microbes are the dominant uh, life form on Earth. We're, we're sort of visitors, um, even though we have billions of people. We're, we're, there's, I mean, there's probably as many species of viruses as humans. Um, there are, they determine the atmosphere. They determine the oxygen. They determine, um, it was funny. We had the, the oil spill in the Gulf, and everyone was really worried about this oil spill. <laughs> they didn't realize that a group of microbes were going to clean it up. That's what happened. Um, microbes probably will figure out the plastic problem. Um, and we need but, them for our own existence. Isn't that right? Don't we depend on microbes? Absolutely. But I'll push you even further here. We depend upon viruses, not just uh, bacteria. Bacteria are, and viruses are part of us, but uh, probably most people don't know that viruses are more helpful than enemies. They are absolutely necessary for us. Uh, let me give you a little bit uh, examples. I talk about this in the book, but uh, so in our in every cell of our body, there is a certain amount of DNA, and two percent of that DNA is what we normally think of as calling genes. Maybe 20-30% are regulating that 2%. And then the other 50% are basically viruses, are basically virus-like particles and old viruses that have been placed there. And a lot of what our cell does is control these jumping genes so that they don't take over. But meanwhile, they're absolutely necessary for our lives. They have a lot to do with how the brain works. They created the molecule called syncytium. Syncytium molecule is the molecule that allows the placenta to operate. It connects the placenta to, uh, it's that connection that, that came from a molecule from a virus because the virus, uh, connects with the cells and that's how the placenta, uh, learned how to do that. Um, and, um, the, Viruses create uh, certain enzymes from the salivary gland. In other words, these are genes put in our DNA from viruses. So a lot of valuable stuff has come from these uh, embedded viruses, and a lot of valuable stuff comes from the jumping genes, but there's so many, and it's so huge, they have to be controlled. Viruses that are embedded in our uh, cells, in our DNA, create not just the molecule that's necessary to make placentas, but also for uh, uh, enzymes to break up food, salivary enzymes, but also to help uh, um, stem cells, and they're very valuable in the brain. But there are so many of them that they have to be controlled. So the jumping genes, which they're called, these are virus-like particles that are in our DNA that, are, that have the capacity to, to move, move about. They have a capacity to cut themselves out and sew themselves back in somewhere else. That's called a jumping gene. They have enzymes with them that, that can do that. So this activity has to be controlled, but a lot of it is valuable. Um, I already mentioned that in the gut, there are these viruses that are actually protecting us against dangerous uh, bacteria. So we can't think of viruses as negative. We have to think of the fact that viruses are viruses also have more more DNA, more genes than all other creatures combined. Way, way more. So that and they're transferring them around. So the source of information for evolution comes from these viruses. The problem is we have to think of not living in such a way where these negative viruses can take over the way the way COVID has. So that's a whole other subject.
Now, we think of ourselves as a single organism with the brain that controls us, as it were. But these concepts that you're describing, they're a lot more complicated and a lot less singular. Would you tell us a little bit about that? You mean in terms of um, we're actually a a civilization of many, many different contributing uh, little consciousness. So the argument about what is consciousness goes on. Um, the fact is there is no definition of consciousness. There's no definition of intelligence that makes any sense scientifically. And there's no definition of life. Uh, Zimmer just recently wrote a book describing how every definition of life is inadequate. Many people think it's just a cell that has metabolism, but it, it, viruses are viruses alive. Well, they sure behave like they're alive, and they're just a molecule. Um, and uh, so we don't know what consciousness is, and there's some reason to think that cells certainly have decision-making. They certainly have some level of, of awareness and uh, intelligence. So are we, uh, is our intelligence built upon uh, trillions of other little uh, intelligent cells? No one knows the answer to this. Uh, what we do know is how it's all completely interconnected and how you cannot separate the brain from the body. And we don't know what this subjective feeling, this subjective awareness that we all have. Uh, there's no scientific explanation for that um, other than accepting that it is part of nature, which I do, but not every scientist does. But again, that, that's not a scientific explanation, but it may lead to one. Right now, people want to think that it's just created from the brain. Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, and it doesn't hold up. Um, when, when you look at, at how all the cells work together and how everything is interconnected. Is there any information to help us understand wisdom, why some people are wiser and more empathetic than others, regardless of age? Well, that's it. Well, uh, I wrote an article on my blog, on my blog uh, about how the recent research on elderly brains, and most people today have a prejudice that old brains are inferior rather than the old prejudice prior to modern science where old people were wiser and had better brains. So what is the truth? Um, well, the research shows that the older brain is mainly has one deficiency that seems to be inherent in the uh, getting older in the brain is word finding. So they have trouble. Oh, you know, it's on the tip of my tongue. That word. Uh, what is that word? So that that is confused for lack of wisdom and lack of intelligence. In actual fact. The brain is extremely dynamic and active, and it's based upon how we use it. In other words, if you use your brain for uh, meaningless, trivial things, uh, it will not develop into a brain with uh, wisdom. But if you use your brain for uh, meaningful activity, now I count meaningful activity as a lot of things. It can be anything that involves creativity, that involves helping society, that involves uh, uh, taking care of others, um, but it can be uh, creative activity, artwork, uh, music. Um, all of those activities create neuroplasticity, which is the way the, the brain grows. So the brain grows new circuits. So as we get older, if we're using our brain in meaningful activities and doing the other good things we mentioned already, uh, the sleep, uh, so as we do things that are meaningful, we create 
complicated new circuits that connect the left and the right side of the brain, that connect the frontal lobes with the other lobes, so that when you look at the brain of a uh, 100-year-old person who has had active, uh, meaningful use of his brain, his brain is far superior to a younger brain. And this brain has more pattern recognition. Pattern recognition is grows as these circuits grow. So the neuroplasticity really determines uh, how good a brain is. And the neuroplasticity is based upon the good things we talked about, whether you're getting enough sleep, whether you're getting enough exercise, but particularly whether you engage the brain in these building these circuits of meaningful activity. So use it or lose it like the rest of the body. Correct. Very much so. It's extremely active and dynamic. No one really realized that until the last number of years, just how dynamic the brain is. What does this all mean for us in everyday life? For our listeners who are saying, well, isn't that, doesn't that make sense that all of the body parts are connected, that they're intercommunicating? Maybe we thought that we were a simpler organism than we are, more of an ecosystem than a single individual. Is that right? Yes. Right now, I mean, there's different implications. Uh, basically, it helps understand advanced medical treatments. If you have cancer, this is very helpful to understand the basis of of these immune types of treatments. Um, I was surprised that the book was um, praised as one of the best business books because I didn't write it as a business book. And But the reason why is because they said that if you're in uh, business, it'd be useful to know what the future of medicine is. And the fact that cellular intelligence was – he called it the holy grail of, uh, of medicine and research. So uh, that – is sometimes useful, but uh, it really is uh, allows you to understand uh, biology, how uh, health works, uh, if you're interested in that. And Harvard Business Review, is this the article that you're talking about? Uh, the article we were talking about was in the Harvard Review, uh, which was – not specifically about that, but about how uh, the the mind is the body and the body is the mind, and you can't separate those. And so that's that, uh, unartificial intelligence? Yes, unartificial intelligence in the Harvard uh, Business Review. And that is from the November-December 2020 issue. Correct. Clearly, these concepts that we're discussing have repercussions not just for our own understanding of health. You were talking about meditation and acupuncture, but longer term. One of the issues that you raised in the book that really makes you think is this idea of physics as you talked about quantum physics and Newtonian physics. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we don't really understand quantum physics, uh, but what we do know is that it underlies um, chemistry, that underlies biology, and life is based upon photons hitting electrons and creating an electron flow and then creating a proton uh, uh, a gradient and then creating chemical energy particles that then run every reaction that, uh, that exists. So underlying uh, biology is, um, is chemistry. And underlying that is uh, our photons and protons, but we don't yet understand uh, how that all fits together. Um, there are some theories that consciousness is involved in a in a in a quantum um, 
computer that's inside of microtubules. Microtubules are the uh, circular uh, scaffolding molecules that exist all through uh, every cell, uh, but heavily in neurons and allow them to move. They're constantly breaking down and no one knows how these scaffolding molecules can know how to build the structure and tear it down in milliseconds. And as a cell moves, uh, it's breaking down and building structures, sort of like an, imagine an amoeba. Each of those pseudopods has a whole scaffolding structure uh, in it. So uh, somewhere in there, there's a brain uh, telling it what to do. And is that based upon a quantum uh, mechanism? Probably it is. One of the great physicists who just won the Nobel Prize uh, think so, uh, but you can't prove it, and we don't have evidence there. So to me, the, the real thing, uh, so it does raise the question, is consciousness uh, from cells understanding? But we don't have the answer to that either. Um, so to me, it really just gives a direction to look at developments in biology uh, and it allows us to understand where medicine is going. But uh, these answers aren't available at this time. In addition to your book, where else can our listeners gain more knowledge, those who are thirsty to have a better understanding of these concepts that we're talking about that some believe are maybe the word is revolutionary, certainly in terms of how we look at our bodies. I think it is revolutionary to think that cells are intelligent, not think, but to have evidence. I mean, what I did with the book is I wrote a, it's basically a visual tour that anyone can understand about the world of cells. It's sort of just as a panoramic view of, you know, this happens and that happens and sort of, sort of the life of, uh, of, of the cell, and it is revolutionary, and I really wrote the book because I didn't see it anywhere else uh, is the problem. So in terms of recommending, I don't know <laughs> exactly what to, what to recommend. Um, we do have discussions. I, I'm on Twitter, by the way, uh, and Facebook, but Twitter is at John Leaf, M-D, J-O-N-L-I-E-F-F at AOL, and my website is Searching for the Mind. But at this moment, uh, looking at the signaling and the language, it's just extremely filled with jargon and very, very complicated and unnecessarily. So I feel like what I've done is I've translated it is all. I've translated the scientific journals from science and nature uh, which is what I was doing for 10 years on my website, basically taking review articles that are in molecular biological and genetic gobbledygook and just translating it into English. Um, and then eventually when I got enough information that was translated, I realized that uh, everything is these cells talking to each other. So that's when I wrote the book. It's a good word, gobbledygook. Yeah. <laughs> John, thank you for joining us from West Tisbury, Massachusetts. Yes, well, thank you. It's been delightful. And to our audience, you have been listening to John Leaf, who discussed his book, The Secret Language of Cells, What Biological Conversations Tell Us About the Brain-Body Connection and the Future of Medicine and Life Itself. Who discussed... Why Cell Communication is Important for Our Health. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com. 